Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Thursday, December 30th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Happy New Year. This is part two of a two-part special edition of The Takeaway. Last week, I asked everyone on the show to pick what they think was the most important political topic of 2021. And this week, we'll look at what folks think will be the critical things to watch in 2022. Joining me are Tom Bevin, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief, and A.B. Stoddard, columnist and associate editor. So, Tom, 2022 is almost here. Happy New Year. So tell me, what trend or storyline will you be watching in 2022? Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, good to be back. My story that I chose that I'm going to be really interested in watching is Hispanic voters. We saw some polling data last year that suggested that Hispanic voters are trending toward the GOP. Now, we saw that in 2020, actually, with Trump and the way he performed, not only with Cuban-Americans in the Miami-Dade area, but in those counties in South Texas, right on the border, right? He, He did very, very well with Hispanics, better than a Republican had done there since since Reconstruction. Um, we saw that replicated in the Virginia governor's race, where Glenn Youngkin did very well with Hispanics. And we've seen polling since then that suggests that if the election were held today, that Hispanics would break evenly between Democrats and Republicans. That's a sea change. That is a that is an earthquake politically for Democrats. If they if they are not winning two thirds of the Hispanic vote, that would be really troublesome for Democrats and portend very bad things because based on demographics of the share they're getting of the white vote and the African-American vote, Hispanics are you know 13% of the country. They are populate all of these swing states from Arizona to Georgia to Florida. And, and it's going to make 2022 very, very difficult if they cannot get Hispanics back in their corner. It could be very dramatic and, and, and not good for the Democrats. I think this is a really interesting trend as well. And, and- Part of what Tom's talking about is this poll that came out in the Wall Street Journal. I think it was in November, maybe early December. Um, and it showed that Hispanic voters were split evenly between Democrats and Republicans in the 2022 generic congressional ballot. 2024 hypothetical rematch between Trump and Biden. Uh, Hispanic voters favored Biden by only a single point. And this was a voting group that favored Biden over Trump in 2020 by 26 points. So this is a huge sea change. Do you think it'll show up in the uh, in the midterms? I'm from California, as you know, and I've been, you know, paying attention to the Latino vote for ever since I started covering politics. And, you know, there were people like uh, Rui Teixeira and uh, Sergio Van Dixon, and who we we quote, you know, every two years or four years, and they've weighed in. Uh, Teixeira wrote a piece and he said, uh, basically said that the Democrats' worries, uh, they're not worried enough. And they're very worried about this trend Tom's talking about. You know, for years, I, I've written and talked about and wondered if the Hispanic vote ever became like the black vote, a monolithic Democratic vote. And, and, and if Asians ever broke like that, that was the end of the Republican Party as we knew it. And they needed to reach out to Hispanics. This was the, the party commissioned to report the Republican Party after the 2016 presidential campaign. And this was one of its conclusions that they had to reach out to Hispanics. Then Donald Trump comes along. And in his opening statement for president, he says Mexican-Americans are rapists and drug dealers, and they're not sending their best people. And I thought, well, that was nice while it lasted. But it turns out that there's a lot more going on there. Donald Trump had a broad 
based appeal to working class men of of any race. And what happened in the Democratic Party, the old construct, can Republicans get Latino votes, was turned on its head by a number of factors. But one of them was this embrace, mostly by white liberals, of the more radical elements of identity politics uh, epitomized by the Black Lives Matter movement. This is not where Hispanic voters are, denouncing the founding of the country, seeing every single thing that happens as an epitome of white privilege. Calling calling Latino voters Latinx or Latinx. Latin, <laughs> yeah. Which, which offends most of them, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And so these immigrants have come here because they see that America still is a country of opportunity. They love this country. Uh, and first and second generation Hispanics are not into, you know, some of the far left um, theories of American history that have come out of the academy. White liberal Democrats kind of embraced it without thinking about it too much. And I think there's a, I think there's a backlash to it among immigrants and among Hispanic voters. So AB, you know, there's two parts of this that I think are interesting. One is this idea, I think maybe this is too simplistic, but the idea that demography is destiny politically and that inevitably as the demographic makeup of the country changes, the Democratic Party would pick up all these new voters. And the second thing is that I've done a lot of work with the Pew Research Center to look at this very closely. And, uh, you know, there's an argument that there are Hispanics who vote, but there is no Hispanic vote. I mean, I think we've looked for um, several cycles at the breakdown of uh, different kinds of Latino voters, you know, Cubans, always more Republican, very different uh, feelings among Mexicans in Texas than Mexicans in California. It's a very broken up coalition. But the consolidation that Tom and Carl are talking about among working class uh, Hispanic voters is, is that education is destiny, not demography. And so you have non-college whites in the Republican coalition being joined by non-college Latino voters and non-college African-American voters. The difference, as Carl notes, which I think is so interesting and such a disaster for the Democrats to, to really reckon with and fix is that backlash on culture. And so you have your non-college, working class, Black man voting for Republicans. He is less offended by the woke left and their messaging, though he doesn't connect with it and he doesn't relate to it, than his fellow non-college educated Hispanic voter who's voting with him for Republicans. That voter says, no, 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 no. I agree we need more police, but I am not. A, they don't consider themselves, a lot of them consider themselves white and they are not woke and they are offended by any uh, pushback on the great story of this country and all its blessings. I mean, I think it's weird to say they're more patriotic, but they are offended by the messaging, the cultural left messaging about blaming the country for everything and that everything relates back to the original sin of slavery. And that that is a real difference that that kind of cleave is, it's just been very hard for Democrats to A, reckon, they already sort of know that the older Jim Clyburn Black Democrat is much more centrist and socially conservative than the young left Black Americans who are tweeting. But they really getting their arms around this difference among non-college educated, non-progressive now non-democratic Hispanic voters, I think that's going to be much more challenging for them because of this cultural 
dissonance, this cultural war backlash that the Hispanic voters are manifesting in, the, in these focus groups and polls. Uh, Tom, we're going to talk about the midterms in a second, but how do you see this Hispanic vote uh, affecting the midterms or does it? Oh, I mean, it's going to be huge. I mean, if those numbers show up again, we have competitive House races, uh, swing districts around the country, but we're going to have competitive Senate races in Georgia, in Arizona, in Nevada. The Hispanic vote is going to be is going to play huge in November of next year, and also in in twenty twenty four again. And this is the interesting thing. I mean, some Democrats get it. James Carville, of course, who gets dismissed and mocked as being sort of the crusty old white guy, um, telling Democrats, "Hey, it's still the economy, stupid," and knock off this woke stuff. Democrats need to reconnect with working class voters of all colors and of all genders, quite frankly. Uh, because they've 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 lost touch with that, and that used to be the bedrock of the Democratic Party, and it's shifted to the point now where it's be- becoming the bedrock of the Republican Party, and that is not a that's not a good place for Democrats to be. So, but it but it is going to be a real balancing act between sort of assuaging the progressive left who wants to continue to push hard on LGBTQ and BLM and CRT and all this stuff. And still hold on to those voters who are like, hey, they're interested in the economy and having jobs. And and um, so we'll see whether they're able to do it or not. Right now, though, it doesn't look promising. I mean, they're going to really need to change their messaging and change their posture. Well, Carl, I didn't mean to steal your thunder there because you're – tell us what you're going to be watching in 2022. Well, it's – you know, we're real clear politics. So I've got to say the midterms. I mean, if the storyline that probably personally interests me the most in 2022 is whether Tom Brady will win his eighth Super Bowl at age 59 <laughs> or whatever he is. But since we're real clear politics, let's talk about the midterms. And, and, and let's actually talk about it in terms of age. I mean, Tom Brady is actually phenomenal, but he's, he's only 44. This upcoming election to me has a a feeling of a passing of the, of the torch. And it's almost generational. You know, you got these Gen Zers and millennials who break liberal, but the party leaders in that party, the Democratic Party, are old. Uh, the three leaders in the House, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn, who AB talked about, are in their 80s. Joe Biden, who's the titular head of the Democratic Party, who will he'll be he's the president of the United States, he'll be 80 by the end of the year. I think Chuck Schumer, I think he's seventy, going to be 75. He's the spring chicken <laughs> of the Democratic leadership. You've got this old party, the oldest political party in the world, and these old leaders going to the voters, you know, with this message that, you know, what is their message? You know, that America is a racist country. It feels like a turning of the page. Will the Republicans eke out a win because midterms in the president's first year tend to go against the party and because they have a couple of good Senate candidates? Or will this be actually a, a, a sea change, a tide that's changing, that's partly generational? That's what I'll be looking at. So, A.B., what do you think? Is it going to be a uh, wave election? I mean, as we know, uh, the party in power tends to lose seats, especially in the House in these midterms. I think that's happened to every president, at least in recent memory. How bad do you think it'll be? I couldn't find any article as I was preparing for this. Uh, I found one article where uh, someone argued that um, the Democrats did have a path to victory. This was in the Washington Post. And the, the advice was President Biden has to be more become more popular and <laughs> the economy has to be better. And no clues. <laughs> Good advice, I think. But how bad? Yeah, they have to cast a spell over the nation to make the nation feel better 
about the economy and everything. I, I, look, the numbers are what they are. The historical average of those losses for the party in the first term of the presidency that controls the Congress since World War II is 27 seats. They have a three-seat margin with redistricting alone and even a terrible night for Republicans. They're going to take back the majority. But Clinton loses 50. Obama loses 60. I'm thinking 30 is a bad night. It'll go past probably closer to 40, maybe over more than 40. Um, if the election were held tomorrow. And I don't know what's going to happen between now and then. I don't know if we're going to see some black swan event where the country rallies to the president. I, I, I'm just saying if it was tomorrow, the Democrats cannot hold the House. There's a 75% chance that the Republicans take the Senate by one seat. The more likely scenario is they pick up two to three seats and they're in the majority there as well. Again, it would take a black swan event to, so that I can be brief. That's that's all I can say. Don't anyone go making any bets on the Democrats this fall. Tom, what's the over-under, though? What's the over-under on what? On House seats. 35, mm-hmm. you know, probably, something like that. No, AB's got it. It's 27. That's the historic number. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's going to be interesting to see. I think the House is gone, whether Democrats can recover the Senate. So the NRSC just released polling yesterday that came out that showed Adam Laxalt in Nevada leading uh, Catherine Cortez Masto by about four or five points, which is, you know, not bad for a challenger against an incumbent. In Georgia, Herschel Walker was leading Raphael Warnock by one point. It was like 49, 48. That's not a good number for Republicans. I mean, this goes back to the whole idea, like if the primaries, it's all the Trumpy candidates win and they carry various baggage into the general election and the Landscape improves for Democrats. Maybe inflation comes down, maybe COVID gets under control, whatever. And suddenly it's not a scenario where Republicans are leading by two and a half, three points on average in our real clear politics average in the generic ballot, but it's more like a 50 50 or Democrats retake the lead by a point or two. They're still going to lose the House, probably, uh, or likely, I should say. But suddenly the Senate becomes a proposition where instead of losing three or four or five seats, Maybe they can get to a point where they break even. You know, maybe Mark Kelly can win in Arizona. Warnock can hold on in Georgia. You know, Democrats can hold on in, in New Hampshire, for example. So we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. But that poll struck me as, you know, Herschel Walker should be up by more than a point in this current environment right now against Raphael Warnock in Georgia. That was not a good poll. So we'll see. I mean, it's just one poll. Let's, let's have more data to make better assessments about the political landscape. So you don't buy my theory that, that you could have a, just the p- people just want to turn the page, a real, a real wipeout. No, I, I think there actually could be a real wipeout. Okay. I mean, the generic ballot that we've seen in some of these polls has been, you know, in the Washington Post polls at an all time high, 40 year high, Republicans up 10 points. That would suggest, you know, that would suggest 40, 50 plus seats in the house. And that would suggest Democrats losing not only all the races that I talked about, but losing places like Colorado, where Bennett's you know, running for re-election, or Washington State, or places that we're not even currently contemplating because the environment would be so bad politically for Democrats at that point. Now, that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is things improve and you know, they, they break even in the Senate or whatever. Um, but I think the, mid, the midpoint right now is historical average is probably not bad, but it's, you know, 25 to 35 seats in the House, and it's a couple of Senate seats, and Republicans retake control. Andy, can I ask a question of the group? All right, Andy, you got to play too. So we're talking about the midterms, we talked about the House, Tom just went through the Senate. There's an easy seat for uh, Mitch McConnell to pick up 
<laughs> I know what this is. If the Democrats, if the Democrats keep kicking, going around kicking Joe Manchin in the balls, what are the odds? All right, just I, everybody's just up or down that Joe Manchin will stay a Democrat in 2022. AB, you go first. You know, I think it would be easier for him to get reelected as a Republican, but not fun for him to be a Republican in a Republican primary. I don't know. I feel like if he was going to do it, he would have done it sooner. Tom? He's not going to become a Republican, but I'd say, well, I'm going to say there's a 33.33% chance that he becomes an independent caucuses with Republicans. Andy? Far be it for me to agree with Tom, but I think that's about right. I think I think that he may become an independent, but I also think, as AB said, that if he was going to make this move, he would have made it now. Although I am stunned at how badly I think that the the White House and uh, certainly his colleagues in the House have handled this uh, latest uh, conflagration with them. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but we so we're talking about the midterms. But you wouldn't even need to get to a midterm if Joe Manchin decides to leave the Democratic Party in the first week of January, suddenly Biden doesn't get any more judges through or a very, it goes to a trickle. I mean, what are they thinking alienating this guy and attacking him this way? I don't get it. Well, AB, you looked actually beyond the midterms to 2024, although you think a lot of things are going to happen this year that will affect 2024. Tell us about Kamala Harris. Yeah, I think what happens this year is the race in earnest begins for 2024 in the Democratic Party because We're in a very unusual situation where most people believe that Joe Biden is not going to run again, that he won't be able to because of his age and even if he wants to. And there is a lot of widespread concern over the fact that the vice president is not the next in line and the establishment doesn't consider her the heir apparent to the presidency and believe that they are getting ready for an open primary um, at a time when the party is very divided. And to be brief, this is fair or unfair, but it's reality that she's being considered this kind of bummer, (laughs) right? The great do no harm pick for the campaign, but once in office, you know, there's no end to stories about how her allies think she was just saddled with these unfair assignments that would just drag her down and make her look bad that she just couldn't win on. Turns out she actually asked for the voting rights assignment. She has not met with people like Joe Manchin and the people who are really at the table on voting rights. She's not in at the Congress, you know, really trying to find out how they can tweak their proposals. A.B., that's because she's too busy handling the border. (laughs) Right. And on the border, you know, that's been a spectacular failure. I understand it's an unprecedented situation. I understand that if she's too much in the public eye, it looks like he can't do his job. If she's not in the public eye, it looks like she can't do her job. But the truth is Kamala Harris has no political constituency. It's why she foundered so badly in the primary. There's no natural base for her. And she has terrible political instincts as she exhibited in the primary on healthcare. And so the reports about her being a mean boss, even though men are mean bosses, including Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and on and on, Um, are a problem for her. The fact that she's nervous in her public presentations are a problem for her. Her bad poll numbers are a problem for her. And the worst criticism you can get is the fact that she doesn't read her briefing materials. And that's circulating in all these stories where they quote unnamed former staffers of hers. I, I look back to this conversation I had in 2019 with the smartest Democratic brain I've consulted for 25 years in this town, who told me she is a lawyer. 
She is wonderful at her job. She is a prosecutor and she is an attorney general, but she is not a political candidate. And that was before the primaries happened. And that's exactly who she proved to be. I think we'll continue to stumble. And I think it's a huge opening for obviously the rise of Pete Buttigieg, who's seen as sort of a natural rival. I was fascinated that he was quoted in a recent New York Times story, kind of trying to defend her like trying to get good brownie points with her because their camps are now broken up into two different kind of competing factions. It's going to produce a lot of drama and going to be, I think, a big problem for the Democratic Party. And it's going to open up not in late 23, but this year. Tom, what do you think? Well, I agree with AB. It's going to be a problem for the Democratic Party. This is such a weird situation the Democrats find themselves in, right? Biden just said in an interview last week with ABC's David Muir that he's running again. And Jen Psaki said, nobody believes him, not even Kamala Harris. Nobody believes him, but he has to say it. He can't declare himself a lame duck inside the first year of his administration. So he's proclaiming he's running. Nobody believes him. Kamala Harris is, I mean, let's just be frank. She's bad at her job. She's bad at politics. I mean, she just said the other day in an interview, you know, we didn't see Omicron coming and, and the White House cleaned that up only for Biden to say it like a couple of days later. <laughs> but she's just not a good politician. She has proven that over time, both in the primary and now in office. This idea that somehow she's being saddled by, uh, you know, it's it's Republican racism and misogyny that, you know, it's like all these stories are coming from her folks and folks within the Biden administration. I mean, they're leaking, trying to position themselves. So But looking forward, I mean, this is the real problem for Democrats. If you think Pete Buttigieg is the answer to the Democrats' problems, I've got a bridge to sell you. The problem is they don't have anyone who will naturally rise to the top and become a leader. It's all the same. It's Pete Buttigieg. People are talking about They Even Hillary Clinton's name popped back up. I mean, if the Democrats were to go back to Hillary Clinton and try and do a rematch of 2016. I mean, that just seems insane to me. So what are the fun election to cover, Tom? Oh my God, it would be the thriller in Manila. I'll be peacing out in that case. (laughs) I I will be opening Real Clear's Caribbean uh, office (laughs) and uh, phoning it in. No, it's it. Andy, are you going to let anybody demur on this bashing of the vice president of the United States? Because I'd like I have something to say on that. It just shows what what a difficult spot the Democrats are going to be in moving forward in terms of who's going to who's going to be able to lead the party. It's going to be it's going to be not great. And I think there isn't anything that's going to stop it from continuing until Michelle Obama parachutes in and saves the day. Well, Carl. Well, that that was going to be my punchline, but I'll I'll I'll. I'll, that's okay, Tommy. She's caught in this catch-22. Both Tom and AB alluded to it. If, if Biden's popularity goes up uh, enough to you know elevate her, well, he runs again. If his popularity doesn't go up and he doesn't run again, um, it reminds people that she didn't even make it to the starting gate of the 2020 primaries, um, that she was out of it before the first Votes were counted. And as A.B. pointed out that, you know, she has a constituency of one. Her constituency was Joe Biden, the guy who rescued her career by making her vice president. Having said that, though, you go back. The first presidential campaign I remember was 1968. You know, Hubert Humphrey had no chance. He was going to, you know, he wasn't. It was an afterthought. Gene McCarthy challenged LBJ. Belatedly, Bobby Kennedy got in the race. Hubert ended up being the nominee. And he would have been even a even if Kennedy hadn't have been assassinated. The vice president is the number two person in the party. We've never had anything quite like this, where she you know, kind of plucked out of, out of the crowd, but 
She's the vice president. This election is not going to happen for another three years. My guess is she'll find her sea legs. She'll ride her ship. If Joe Biden gets the Democrats in a position where they're viable in 2024 and he decides not to run again, he's then in a position to endorse her. I, I don't say there won't be a primary, but then some of these criticisms we're hearing about her. Yeah. Okay. She doesn't read her briefing books and then she berates staffers for not being prepared. Look, that's not great. But there was a presidential candidate I remember who rarely read briefing books and would kind of chuckle when you asked him why he hadn't. And that politician was the most popular president of my lifetime. And that's Ronald Reagan. I think writing her off already is premature. Carl has put Ronald Reagan and Kamala Harris in the same sentence. That is a first, but uh, go ahead, Tom. (laughs) From California. And this podcast with who's going to be the nominee, the Democrats nominee for 2024. Well, now. Name names. (laughs) Okay. I may have to retire (laughs) by then because a wise man wrote uh, nothing digital ever dies. This was a writer from the Silicon Valley back in the early days of the net. That writer was me. So this could come back to haunt me. But I guess I'm if I could get three or four to one odds, I would say that Kamala Harris is not only the next nominee of the Democratic Party, but the next president of the United States. Wow. 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 Three or four wow. to one. That's all I'm asking. A.B., you want to play? I don't play predictions in this environment. I remember <laughs> the Republicans having the best bench ever in 2016 and Donald Trump was nominated. So um, I'm out of the prediction business. Maybe it's someone we haven't even like heard of yet. It's a lot of what if Stacey Abrams, what if she won the governorship of Georgia? What if Gretchen Whitmer got re-elected? Then they would be higher on the list than Pete Buttigieg, blah, blah, blah. I know Donald Trump is running until he can't. I think Joe Biden thinks he has to run because he doesn't have confidence in the other people in the party to face Trump. So he is probably going to try to run until he can't. And they're two old white men. And I guess some crazy things will happen between now and then. Andy, before Tom goes, AB's point is right. I mean, three years out, who would have predicted Donald Trump would be president? You know, Or, or Barack Obama, two, for that matter. In 2013. That's right. So, I mean, it could be, look, it could be Eric Adams. It could be Tom Hanks. It could be somebody uh, who's not on our radar at all. Uh, Tom's going to laugh if I say it could be Gavin Newsom. So I won't say it could be Gavin Newsom. <laughs> I am going to laugh at that. <laughs> but so look, politics now moves at faster speed than it used to. Well, not only that, the barriers to entry are extraordinarily low, way lower than they they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So, I mean, I, I cannot I'm, be Elon Musk though, Tom, because he's not born in this country. <laughs> I'm not good at the prediction game either. I remember writing a column, which I think Carl has framed in his office that said Hillary Clinton wouldn't run in 2016. So <laughs> <laughs> I tried to talk you out of that one, Tom. <laughs> I just want to join in um, the, into the humility bucket to say that I wrote a piece that was on Real Clear years ago saying, no, Jeb Bush is not running for president. And I said, <laughs> who looks like he'd rather swallow glass then then run for president, Jeb Bush. And I will not mention who a member of the Texas delegation immediately called me up. We were, you know, we have a relationship and invited me to lunch, like to like, I, it turns out to mock me, obviously, because Jeb announces like a week after I write my column or something. It was so embarrassing. But he looked yes. miserable about it before it started. He must have known. Well, if you've if you've been a pundit long enough, you've said plenty of things that have turned out to be false, and we're all in that bucket. But my only prediction will be, and this very well could be wrong, that the Democrats 
at least currently have nobody on the landscape that is an obvious choice and who can really unite the party. And so it will be someone from outside politics. It will not be a governor. It will not be a senator. I mentioned Michelle Obama. It could be Dwayne The Rock Johnson. People laugh at him, but it's going to be it's going to need to be someone with star power, with real charisma in the same way that Obama did. I mean, this has become a personality contest these days, and they're going to need someone who can really unite the party that everybody can buy into. And right now, it doesn't seem like, you know, Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or anyone you're going to name has that ability. So that's my only prediction. And it's probably wrong, but I made it anyway. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Good predictions for next year. I want to thank Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, A.B. Stoddard. We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form or fashion. Bookmark this podcast, check back often. And to get ready for the coming debates in 2022, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. It's always important, but perhaps now more than ever to expose yourself to arguments that you might not run into in your normal newsfeed. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year from all of us here at Real Clear Politics. I'm Andrew Walworth.